standard issue for all women. Hello, Jen here to tell you about this week's episode of The Sunday Chops. Midwife and best-selling author Leah Hazard became a household name after the publication of her second book, Hard Pushed, A Midwife Story. She's back with a third book about one of the most politicised, medicalised and yet misunderstood organs in the human body, the womb. In her new book, Womb, the inside story of where we all began, Leah looks at the reasons behind the lack of knowledge around the womb, the incredible efforts being made in science to rectify this, and why the womb is at the forefront of human rights. I mean, this is right up our street, yes? Yes. So I got on the Zoom with Leah to talk about research and attitudes around women's bodies and getting men and publishers as well as scientists to care about them. I'm just going to throw it out there that once you've listened to this, mixed chat with Dr. Marika Big a couple of weeks ago would make an excellent companion to this podcast. And if you like these, you should definitely hit subscribe on your podcast platform of choice to make sure you don't miss any of our excellent interviews. But for now, I hope you enjoy listening to this as much as I enjoyed chatting to Leah. I am joined by midwife and author Leah Hazard. Leah's here today to talk to me about her new book, Womb, the inside story of where we all began. Hi, Leah. Thanks very much for joining me. It's a pleasure. Thank you. I wanted to start off, first of all, because you are a midwife, right? You you are a trained and practicing midwife. So can you tell us a little bit about your background, please? Because you didn't you didn't really intend to get into midwifery, did you? This is as much a surprise to me as it is to anybody else. I I never, ever would have expected to be a midwife. Uh, I grew up in America where the role of a midwife is very different from what it is here in the UK. And I think it's a role that I maybe only even heard about vaguely growing up. So it wasn't on my radar at all. My first degree at uni was in English and American literature and language. And I was aiming to go actually and do something in theatre. I was really interested in directing and I did a lot of that at uni. So I went to uni the first time around in America, where I grew up, and then I came over to Glasgow to do a master's degree in directing. And I uh, shortly thereafter met my now husband, uh, which probably explains a lot about why I'm still here. (laughs) And when I finished my master's degree, I did work in um, telly, actually, for a while as a researcher, kind of behind the scenes. And I had my first daughter in 2003. And that was really... I guess, kind of a game changer for me because I had a kind of classically rubbish first birth, found the whole experience pretty shocking and surprising and I guess you could say traumatizing in some ways. And the more I spoke to other women who'd had babies around the same time, it seemed like we all kind of had a very similar experience Mm -hmm. in that although we thought we had been really well prepared and had been good little girls and gone to all the classes and read the books and so on, um, the whole experience was nothing like what we had come to expect. So I did go back to work um, in television for a little while after my daughter was born, but I just, well, kind of very quickly hit the glass ceiling and also simultaneously was becoming kind of consumed with this thorny issue of why pregnancy and birth had been so challenging. And and I felt the system had kind of let me down. And I'd always been interested in women's health, but these, these things kind of all came together in a bit of a perfect storm. And I left my job. At that point in time, I really wasn't ready to go back to school because I had just done kind of five years of uni. Then I found out about the role of a doula, which is sort of a lay birth companion, non-clinical, just for emotional and practical support. And that seemed to fit in really well with my values and where I was with my young family at the time. So I actually worked as a doula 
attending home and hospital births across central Scotland for about six years. In that time, I had another child. Um, birth was completely different, happy to report. And then when my girls were a little bit older, I felt like the time was right to really go for it and, and to be able to train to provide the full package, as it were. So I began my midwifery studies in 2010 and I qualified in 2013 and here I am. So it's just coming up to 10 years in midwifery. Obviously you have an interest in female reproductive health, but what made you want to write specifically about the womb? Why was that such a a fascinating subject for you? What made me want to write about the womb was I knew, I knew after hard push that I wanted to keep writing. Uh, I knew that it would be something in the sphere of reproductive health or maternity or women's issues in, in some way for a while I couldn't really figure out the lens through which to do that I couldn't really figure out kind of the hook and then I literally was just sitting at my desk or actually my daughter's desk underneath her bunk bed which is where I do all my work and um, one afternoon I think it was maybe November 2020 or so around about that time and I just sent an email to my agent. I just had this idea and um, she's an amazing woman. She, she's great for sort of bouncing ideas off and she usually says no, which is fine. So I had this idea. I sent her this kind of two, two line email and I said, why hasn't anyone written a book about the womb? There are all kinds of books about other body parts and systems and they do very well and the bookshops are full of them. But why has nobody written this book? And obviously I would like to write it. What do you think? And she she was receptive, but but not, it has to be said, wildly enthusiastic initially. And then she kind of discussed it with some of her colleagues. And then the enthusiasm really built. And she said, well, why don't you knock up something for me? Just a kind of a couple of chapters or a proposal and we'll see see how we go with it. And I'm, I'm really glad that I, I took it that way for, for a number of reasons. Because, I mean, all of us started life inside this organ, clearly. Roughly half of us have one. And... The uterus is, I would argue, the most medicated, managed, uh, controversial, legislated, and yet misunderstood organ in the human body. Everybody has an opinion about what wounds should do, can do, what should happen inside them, how we should manage them, you know, laws surrounding them. And yet, most people probably couldn't find one on a diagram. A lot of people don't even know that womb and uterus is the same thing. <laughs> it's just two words for the same organ. I mean, we really have to get right down to brass tacks. And then, you know, most people have no idea of, of really the physiological life cycle of the uterus and what we can learn from it. And um, it's a vastly under-researched area. When I started researching the book, I was speaking to scientists who were doing mind-blowing work about what the womb actually does and what we can learn from it, how its processes work and don't work and new ways of diagnosing and managing disease, fertility, conception, all these kinds of fields. It's such an unsung organ and an, you know, an underfunded, under-resourced area. And beyond that, as I wrote the book, I started to realize that understanding the womb isn't just about physiology and, you know, going back to, science class it's much more than that I I realized actually what I was writing a book about was human rights because anytime you're talking about reproductive health Mm. the uterus what it does what it should do what it can't do it comes down to human rights and it comes down to bodily autonomy and 
that really to me is is the point of this book yes it's about educating and informing and hopefully entertaining people and it has lots of quirky facts in it and funny stories that I hope people will enjoy but ultimately I have to get on my soapbox a little bit and say that it, it really is about understanding that the uterus is the front line of human rights in this world and the way that we look at reproductive rights is really the mark of how just and equitable we are as a society so that's that's where I ended up going with it in the end really. It's an endlessly fascinating book and there's so many quirky facts and really fascinating studies as you sort of alluded to as well that are going on at the moment like using menstrual effluent to predict and diagnose illnesses and bacteria um, like harnessing the power of bacteria and things like that it's all like really really interesting stuff like did you find out about anything that sort of particularly excited you in the field of, of research? Yeah, I mean, I thought at the outset of writing the book, obviously, in order for me to pitch the book, I had to kind of position myself as a bit of an expert, or at least persuade a few people that I was, right? (laughs) Um, And I I thought, you know, being a midwife and mother and person with uterus, that's pretty problematic on on even the best day. um, I thought that I knew quite a bit about the uterus, and I, I kind of could map out where I'd be going with the book. But I really have to say that at least... 80 to 90 percent of what is in the book was a complete surprise to me you know on a, on a kind of personal level and I'm quite open about this in the book I've always suffered with incredibly heavy painful periods to the point that it's now you know debilitating at least a couple of days a month for me and I very much grew up with the idea that periods were just yucky and you know the blood is just a hassle it doesn't you, you can't glean anything good from having a no, period. No, you just talk to just chuck it away, aren't you? You know, you, you yeah, have your tampon, you, just, you have your pad, you chuck it away, you don't look at it, that's that, right? Chuck it away, it's dirty, it's got nothing to teach us or tell us about what's happening. Um, and like so many women and people with wombs, I've gone through years of, you know, painful, distressing, invasive investigations to try and work out what's happening. I actually still don't have any answers. I've been on the gynae waiting list for over a year, which Mm. is another story entirely. And what I learned from speaking to a couple of scientists in the book is that this menstrual tissue that we just think of as a nuisance and we just flush away or or bin away rather, actually each person's menstrual flow has a unique uh, biochemical fingerprint it's not just red blood cells, it's immune cells, um, it's, you know, little bits of endometrial tissue, but it also has um, maybe viral fragments in it and, you know, elements of the vaginal microbiome, which is a whole other sort of story. And so each person's menstrual blood is just as unique and potentially can tell us just as much as what we call venous peripheral blood, you know, the blood that you get taken from your arm when you go to the doctor for a blood test. And I spoke to a really fascinating scientist in America who is getting women to collect their menstrual blood in cups or pads. They then send it to the lab to be analyzed. And what she's able to do, and she's she's actually shown that it's remarkably effective so far, is accurately predict or diagnose just from the menstrual samples who might have endometriosis, which is a debilitating disease that on average takes about seven to 10 years at the moment to be diagnosed and takes lots of really costly and, and painful interventions. And I, I spoke to a number of scientists who were doing sort of similar work in that area. And to me, just on a personal level, that was mind blowing because I thought, you know, I know I suffer with this issue. I know so many other people who do. And to think that instead of 
enduring these long waits and these procedures and the not knowing and the distress and having to miss work and you know, all the rest of it, I could just send my tampon into a lab, you know, and there's even technology being developed that, that can analyze, you know, a sanitary product like a tampon or a pad and send that data to your phone. I mean, that's really the frontier that we're looking at. And yet the scientists that I spoke to said that because this stuff is kind of yucky, funding bodies are very loath to research mm. it. And they also don't think that women will participate in these studies when we know that, you know, actually the opposite is true. So although I found out lots of really interesting stuff in the book around pregnancy and birth, which kind of, you know, I enjoy because obviously I'm a midwife and I found the history of all that quite fascinating. On a, on a personal note, I found the work around periods and what we can learn from them really, really interesting and promising. Maybe not for me, but maybe for my, my daughter's generation. We obviously know you've touched in there about research and there's there's a huge gap in research around women and medicine and, and we know about that and we talk about on the podcast quite a lot about medical misogyny the gender pain gap but I was really shocked by some of the language that you outline in the book which I don't think this gets talked about very much and when you think about it like you we've all heard these expressions these terms thrown around like you know incompetent and lazy and things like that to describe like bits of the female reproductive system that aren't working as perhaps you might like them to be the point you make is that we don't do that in any other area of medicine I was really shocked about that you know as a as a service user and also as a person working within the NHS um I've heard all kinds of really quite shocking language directed at women when their bodies haven't worked according to plan. So just a few examples. Some women who are struggling to conceive have been told they have a hostile uterus. That's mm. one I heard quite a few times in the book. Lots of women whose labours don't go to plan are, are labelled with failure to progress or um, you know, weak or ineffective contractions. And a big one that I talk about in the book is very sadly um, when some women suffer pregnancy loss because the cervix has opened or dilated too soon, they're told they have an incompetent cervix. And, and that is actually like the official terminology for what's happened. And in no other field of medicine would doctors have free license to use such derogatory and really kind of personalized terms to describe when, you know, something that's just a physiological process. I mean, somebody actually commented on, on Instagram to me the other day after I was speaking about this on the radio, you know, if a man had a heart attack, you wouldn't say, well, you've got an incompetent heart. Mm. You just wouldn't, you know, or if he couldn't get an erection, they wouldn't say weak penis. Or, you know, it just, it's, we're, we're, nowadays, God, can you imagine looked, the insult? I mean, really, wow. yeah, you've got, you know, ads and posters mm. everywhere you go for erectile dysfunction. You, you don't say, you know, sad penis or you know, bad testes <laughs> but the, I mean I jest but yeah. it's it's to make a point really is that um, we, we don't really think anything of it that we're labeling women and, and people with wombs with these these really quite nasty mm. terms mm. that have their origins in, in real misogynistic roots of medicine and um, when we could quite easily come up with totally neutral yet accurate terminology you know in the, in the chapter when I'm talking about an incompetent cervix, I say, well, why don't we just use preterm dilatation of the cervix or, you know, some other term that just describes the thing that's happening. And I think a lot of your listeners and a lot of readers of the book will 
unfortunately have been on the receiving end of, of this kind of terminology and it really wouldn't take very much at all for us to change this but the language that we use does you know it says so much about how we feel about things and people and bodies so it's uh it's a sad marker of kind of where we are as a society that, that this language is still used it's so commonly used isn't it it's like i've definitely heard those terms before you know i've i've had a a baby myself i've definitely heard women's bodies referred to in those terms but I've never even really thought about it like oh that's you know oh that's not very nice but I think there is still and always has been quite a lot of shame attached to women's bodies and women's sexuality and and reproductive systems and things like that and I'm not too proud to admit that you know at the age of 40 if I were in an office I would probably still go to the toilet with a tampon tucked up my sleeve it would feel like a real like billy big balls kind of a move to be like right lads you know I'm off kind of thing but like do you think that that is changing for the younger generations because chat about periods for example is so much more widespread now than it was when I was a kid there's a lot of discussion about things like period poverty and also like you can go to a toilet you know a football ground and quite often now there will be sanitary products there that are free to use do you think that the system is changing for younger people you know you've talked about the womb being at the sort of front line of human rights reproductive rights etc etc do you think there are other areas where we're kind of like regressing where do you think we're at i mean it's a really interesting question i feel like there are some glimmers of hope for the younger generation. I mean, my, my daughters are 16 and 20 and they speak much more openly with their girlfriends about periods, contraception, sex, bodies, all those kinds of things than I ever would have done. Mm. I think a lot of that is maybe around social media because there are you know, huge discourses about this stuff on TikTok and Instagram and it's just become kind of part of the scenery for them. I also live in Scotland where we have free period products in schools, universities and, you know, public libraries and things. So that helps to make it a bit more visible and accessible. But I'm aware that they're quite privileged to be moving in those circles and to be living in Scotland and, you know, to be educated, white, healthy young women. And it's, you know, it's not that way for everyone. And on the flip side of this, you know, here's me as a 45-year-old perimenopausal woman having just written a book about the womb. And so much of what I've read and is happening in the world recently just makes me really depressed and feels like we are actually just going backwards. I mean, just in the last week alone, a judge in America is on the brink of ruling to outlaw mifepristone, which is a really important um, medication that's used not only for abortions, but to terminate septic pregnancies. It's used also in cancer treatment as well. It's a huge threat to bodily autonomy. We've had a re- report released by the UN saying that maternal mortality in pregnancy and childbirth around the world, this is between 2016 and 2020, has actually regressed or stagnated in most places. So every two minutes around the world, a woman dies a preventable death in pregnancy and childbirth. That's the most recent report. We've had (laughs) the actual minister for women and equality stand up in parliament and say that menopause leave is a a left-wing policy. (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah, Yeah. let's get into it. I mean, look, it's, 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 it's tempting just to go, oh, it's too awful. I can't even, can't even contemplate it. But actually when you start tuning into this stuff you realize it's everywhere and it's it's actually pretty dire so yes although i hope that the younger generation are a bit more switched on and maybe things will change 
we've got a lot of work to do. We have to get everybody on board with reproductive rights and bodily autonomy. And that means women and men Mm. and, you know, conservatives and liberals and people in the developing world and the developed world. And that's that's a huge task. It's not going to be easy. That kind of leads on slightly to um, the last question I wanted to ask you, because I noticed that you tweeted the other day about as a nonfiction writer, there's a new prize, uh, the nonfiction women's prize that they're looking for a sponsor at the moment to go alongside the women's prize for fiction sponsored by Bailey's always love that about it yeah um, now in pink now yeah added I know pink for more joy. Yep. matches my nails so that's lovely I wanted to ask you as a non-fiction writer and the, the statistics around men particularly reading non-fiction works by women are dire and you talked before about your agent when you took this idea to her and she wasn't initially like massively enthused by it as someone who has had dealings with publishers and and pitching stuff to them I I feel like there's a very narrow view about what people might be interested in what are the challenges in terms of like getting people to even publish work like this because they must immediately be like well you know no man is going to read that I don't think that's yeah. true, by the way. I think men, I think some men will, but I, you know, it's... Yeah, very few. Well... Yeah. I mean, it's weird for me because I'm in an interesting position because I'm a midwife. Mm. Like, that's my USP in a way. It, I mean, I hate using terms like brand and whatever, but I guess because I'm putting forth a commercial product, mm. i.e. books, that is my brand. I'm a midwife. I write about women's health and reproductive and gynae health. So people expect that from me. So when I take an idea to my agent or she pitches something to publishers, they already know that that's what they're going to get from me. Mm. Um, so I, much as I might love to go and write, a, you know, a book about, I don't know, traveling or politics or food or something else, mm. I, I know that that's not going to work from me. I kind of have to stay to some degree in my lane. And that's fine, you know, because that's that's the brand that I've created. Where it becomes a little bit, tricky is as you've alluded to kind of bringing in a wider audience uh, that might include men <laughs> and I know that most of my readers won't be men and that's that's okay but what's been interesting over the last few weeks we've obviously been doing promo for the book and um, I've been very lucky to get lovely feedback from um, many female um, authors and journalists and, and public persona and that, that's been great I've had a couple of lovely quotes um in in print and on radio from men Mm. who've read the book or are excited about the book and the mileage that i've been able to get out of those men's words (laughs) compared to the lovely things that women have said about me has been pretty incredible and we were actually talking about that with my um, editor and publicist the other day when i was down in london doing stuff for the book and we, we all just kind of agreed, like, yeah, it kind of sucks, but you, it's just a sad fact of being in this industry that what men say about your book sometimes counts for a bit more. And I hate that, but I kind of have to play that game a little bit. And I don't know if that will ever change for nonfiction. I mean, you, you go into Waterstones or Foils or whatever, your local indie bookshop, and the nonfiction table is groaning with books by men about smart thinking whatever Mm. that means and you know um, great ideas and you know historical stuff about other white dudes and it's (laughs) 
it's going to take a lot to change that. There are some structural issues in nonfiction publishing that unfortunately, you know, I have to exist within. Right, Leah. So your book, Womb, Inside Story of Where We All Began, is published now by Virago. Uh, available, I assume, in all good bookshops and online. <laughs> all of them. And yeah. it's a fascinating read. There's just so much information in it. It's like, you know, just like flipping heck. Who knew? So thank you very much for chatting to me. Where can we follow you on socials so readers can keep up to date? And are you doing any events around the publication of the book that people can sort of sign up for? I am on the socials. I'm on Twitter at hazard underscore Leah. And I am on Instagram at Leah Hazard all one word. You can also visit my website if you are a super fan. That is leahhazard.co.uk and you can get in touch with me via the contact form on that website if you have something exciting to say. And yeah, I pop up uh, in the media pretty regularly for better or for worse. I like to comment and run my mouth on all issues relating to maternity, midwifery, women's health. So you might hear me in that capacity as well. Leah, thank you very much for joining me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Standard Issue for All Women.